0: be tough for people under 70 to understand this, but Bing Crosby was one of the most popular entertainers of the 20th century.
1: Hey, ouch!
0: Among recording artists, he's alongside Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, or the Beatles in terms of cultural influence. He's that much of a big deal. And while Crosby often comes off as a dusty relic of a bygone era in many areas...
1: You're really going in on this.
0: White Christmas endures. It is not only Crosby's most popular song, it is the most popular song ever commercially released. It has moved at least 50 million copies, which is a record unlikely to be surpassed now that streaming is a thing. The next one down in the number two slot is Elton John's version of Candle in the Wind, which has only moved a mere 33 million. But this isn't a podcast about pop music. We're a movie door podcast, and we're talking about the 1954 musical directed by Michael Curtis and starring Crosby alongside Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney, and Vera Ellen. While the film has never quite faded from popular memory, It's fair to say that it hasn't aged quite as seamlessly as the song that it was framed around. So we're going to be delving into that and expanding upon certain themes. And uh sounds like Sylvan already has some words for me. So
2: You're not supposed to interrupt the intro.
0: Oh, Rachel does it routinely. It's all right.
2: That seems like bad form.
0: Oh, well, I'm not Captain Hook. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways... My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive, and we're talking about White Christmas. <laughs> all right. Bad form, please. <laughs> all right. My 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 co-anchors have already introduced themselves, sort of. Uh, my brother Sylvan, who, who is mad at me for saying that Crosby is something of old hat.
2: And dusty.
1: You're <laughs> so dusty. <laughs> Listen, I like Bubba Bing. <laughs>
0: I don't hate Bubba Bang either, but he does feel like he is from a time that was not current, like pre boomer.
1: And he did make his whole thing around nostalgia, so he didn't feel current even when he was current. I get it.
2: I was very surprised to notice that he does look like a ropey microphone. What? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just in old cartoons? My first exposure to him, he, he was a microphone. I think you're thinking
1: of the Sinatra
2: impressions. That was supposed to be Sinatra? That was
0: supposed to be Sinatra. No, they
2: look like Bing Crosby.
0: No, no, Sinatra's the skinny one. You can tell that, like, uh, there's there's a Looney Tunes short where a parrot, who is supposed to be a Bing Crosby impression, is trying to convince, I think it's Sylvester, to kill the Frank Sinatra bird.
1: It's a wonderful episode, I love that one. Oh, well, will yeah, that down for you. Yeah, but
0: whenever the skinny crooner shows up, everyone goes, oh, Frankie. Frankie! Not Bing.
1: Even though Bing Crosby was very popular, he never exactly had
2: sex appeal.
1: And
0: yeah. Frank
2: Sinatra does? Frank Sinatra did, yeah.
0: Frank Sinatra is arguably the first teen idol.
2: He looks like somebody that beats women. Just looking at him, you're like, oh... Yeah,
0: there was there was a period where Frank Sinatra was a like Tiger Beat style heartthrob where you put posters on your wall like Justin Timberlake or Justin Bieber or David Cassidy. He started out as one of those. He's probably the best case scenario for one of those.
1: It's kind of a shame that this is, like, auditory only, because if you could see the expression on Charles' face in
2: this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've just always been kind of horrified by Frank Sinatra, and then I got older and I learned more about him, and I was like, oh, yeah, my instincts were right. Anyway, this isn't actually a Frank
1: Sinatra movie we're talking about.
0: Yeah, getting back to Bing. Uh,
2: <laughs> the not ropey microphone.
0: I was struck by this recording that, big Spiderback made in the 1920s that features a 19 year old uh, Bing Crosby doing one of his earliest vocal performances it was a song called there ain't no sweet man worth the salt of my tears so it's kind of gay because Bing's singing it and he doesn't quite have that earthy baritone that he's known for he, he's, he's doing that 1920s voice and uh, it is profoundly weird I encourage you to look it up
1: yeah I have to look that up later that sounds interesting
0: And anyways, Cheryl, Sylvan, we're talking about White Christmas. (laughs) Are you
2: glad you invaded me on this one?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, here's the plot recap. Uh, This film takes place, well, it opens on Christmas Eve in Europe in 1944 at the height of World War II, or at least the American involvement in it. Lousy Yank showing up late for every war. Former Broadway star Captain Bob Wallace and aspiring performer Private Phil Davis are entertaining the 151st Division with a soldier show. The men have just received word that their beloved Major General Thomas G. Waverly has been relieved of his command. Waverly arrives and delivers an emotional farewell, with the men sending him off with a rousing chorus of The Old Man. After Waverly departs, enemy bombers attack the area, and everyone takes cover. Davis shields Wallace from a collapsing wall and is wounded by the debris. Wallace asks how he can repay Davis for his heroic sacrifice, and Davis suggests that they become a duo act. Cheryl jumps on to that, you know, he was emotionally blackmailed into doing accepting this. <laughs> because Bob doesn't like it, but feels obligated to agree. After the war...
1: fair Bob doesn't like
0: much. Yeah. After the war, the two make it big, first as performers and then as producers, launching a hit musical, Playing Around. They receive a letter supposedly from their old mess sergeant, Ben Freckleface Haynes, asking them to view his uh, sister's act. They watch Betty and Judy sing at a nightclub. And Phil, who likes to play matchmaker, notices that Bob is a little bit interested in Betty, although he's a bit of a slow mover. After the performance of Sisters, uh, the four meet, and Phil and Judy immediately hit it off. They dance outside. Charles said, you wanted to exit every room that way with a flourish?
2: I will from now on, just (laughs) just assume it's happening.
0: (laughs) Betty and Bob, however, argue about Bob's cynicism and the fact that it was really Judy who wrote the letter instead of Ben you see they're real mad and they're throwing these stinging barbs at each other back and forth and if, if you've seen a movie before you know where this is heading
2: sexual tension
0: <laughs> finding out from sexual
2: G- tension with Bing Crosby
0: <laughs> 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 beat be, be <laughs> be Cheryl to it
1: his eyes look really nice
0: <laughs> it does Finding out from Judy that the girl's landlord is falsely suing them from a damaged rug and has even gone so far as to call the police to get his money, Phil gives them tickets that he and Bob had purchased to spend Christmas in New York City. Bob and Phil improvise a performance to buy the girl's time, more on that later. And then they flee to the train where they now have to sit in the club car, much to Bob's chagrin. He is chagrined by many a thing. The girls convince Phil and Bob to forego New York and spend Christmas with them in Pine Tree, Vermont. That's
2: not how trains work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> where they are booked as performers. Okay, this takes place in movie-verse, where everyone wakes up with perfect hair and makeup, especially the women. So you know what? A train can divert to Vermont. Why not?
2: I'm saying, like, they had to pay for more tickets. Okay? You can't just Thankfully, say, like... Thankfully,
1: Bob is rich and famous.
2: Fine. What do <laughs> I do in the club car? Because the train was, was booked up. It was full. Fine. Carry on.
0: Upon arriving in Vermont, they find that all the tourists have abandoned the area due to no snow and unseasonably warm weather. They arrive at the empty Columbia Inn and are aghast to discover that General Waverly is the landlord of the hotel. And he has sunk his life savings into it and is in danger of bankruptcy. Bill and Bob decide to invite some of the cast of Playing Around to Pine Tree to stage a show to draw in the guests, because this is beyond 80s movies where they put on a show to to save the youth center, and they include Betty and Judy in the show. Betty and Bob's romance then starts to bloom, particularly during the midnight snack sequence.
2: Nothing gets my motor, revving like liverwurst and buttermilk. Yep, that's what I was going to say.
0: Even the movie lampshades that, so... Bob later finds out that Waverly received a humiliating rejection letter to his request to rejoin the Army, and he determines to prove to the General that he has not forgotten. Bob decides to call up Ed Harrison, another old Army buddy who now has his own variety show on TV, for help. Ed suggests that they put the general on the show and make a big scene of his misfortune and Bob's kindness, which would be free advertising for Bob and Phil. Bob strongly rejects the idea. He'd rather sing a song about the forgotten general, which is apparently... Much less
1: humiliating. Yeah.
0: Unfortunately, the housekeeper, Emma, overhears only the first half of the conversation, which she relays to Betty, who becomes increasingly cold towards a bemused Bob.
2: And is not direct about her concerns at all, even when he's like, hey, please, tell me what's wrong.
0: Well, this is romcom 101. You, there has to be some kind of snare at the height of Act 2 in order to drive the lovers apart so they can come together during the climax. This is the best they could do. Phil and Judy stage a phony engagement, thinking that Betty is trying to avoid romance because she doesn't want to leave Judy unprotected. However, this backfires when Betty accepts a gig in New York and leaves. Phil and Judy admit the truth to Bob, who becomes enraged, or at least as enraged as Bing Crosby can get, and hurries to New York to tell Betty. They partially reconcile, but he meets up with Harrison before he has a chance to find out what was really bothering her. Betty sees Bob go on to Harrison's show and invites the entire 151st Division to secretly join him in Pine Tree to surprise General Waverly, at Bob and Phil's personal expense. You see, while the General is a big fan of the show... He is distracted from actually watching this sequence because of a fake injury that the film seems to think we're going to find very funny.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Danny Kaye, he's just... It would have been better if it was done
0: little We'll get to that, too. <laughs> Realizing that she was mistaken, Betty returns to Vermont just in time to participate in the big show. Once again on Christmas Eve, the soldiers surprise General Waverly with another rousing chorus when he arrives at the program, bringing him to tears. During the performance, Betty and Bob become engaged, and Judy and Phil decide to go through with their own engagement. Why
2: did they get engaged? I think that that's
1: supposed to be kind of implied by her giving him the knight statue, because of that whole like, thing they've got about knight up on the horse and all that. Oh, it's pretty vague.
0: Yeah, As everyone sings White Christmas, a thick snowfall at last it's Vermont. Oh, no. Like most movies during this period, the snow is actually asbestos.
2: We're doing asbestos
0: we can. <laughs> oh, no. Anyways, that's the film. Fairly <laughs> really slight on that area. Does anyone have anything they'd like to comment before I start diving into the background of this?
1: No, you can you can jump right in, and then if I uh, think of anything, you know, I've got some
2: some ideas.
0: All right, "White Christmas" the song was written by Irving Berlin sometime in 1940. It was first performed by Crosby on the Christmas episode of the NBC radio show, The Craft Music Hall, in 1941, several weeks after the Pearl Harbor attack. It was recorded again by Crosby for the 1942 film Holiday Inn. It was a slow seller at first. Several other Holiday Inn songs were more popular than it from the jump, but it ultimately topped the charts for 11 consecutive weeks. A White Christmas was one of the first secular Christmas songs to be a pop hit. It arguably created the holiday music industry as it exists today. Everything from All I Want for Christmas Is You to... I don't know. It's kind of hard. That thing kind of has eclipsed everything else for the past 10 years or so. But yeah, White Christmas paved the way for all of that.
2: Last Christmas.
0: Okay, yeah. Last Christmas, that too. The Holiday Inn version won the 1942 Oscar for Best Original Song. However, the rendition that is usually played on oldie stations or as diegetic background music in other Christmas movies and Christmas sitcom episodes, it was actually a 1947 rendition. There are also a little over 500 cover versions, which feels like not enough to me. Because I mean, everyone and their mother has done that song. Yep. <laughs> Irving Berlin proposed a white Christmas film in 1948. That is how long it took for them to make this. Paramount bought the pitch, provided $2 million in funding, and agreed to only take a third of the profits. Norman Krasna wrote the first draft of the screenplay, and at the time, they considered this to be a vehicle for another pairing between Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire, who had done Holiday Inn and, in 1946, Blue Skies, which is another movie where Bing Crosby sings White Christmas. However, Astaire hated the script, wanted nothing to do with the movie, and soon severed ties with Paramount.
2: Dang, he really hated the scripts.
1: I'm sure there was more to it than that. Was he, what, did he jump back to MGM or something?
0: I believe so. Donald O'Connor signed on to replace Astaire, but he had the dropout due to illness at the very last moment. Wow. I I want
1: to see the alternate universe where they got to do this movie with him. He would have been so good in it.
0: I think we all prefer Donald O'Connor to Danny Kaye.
2: Yeah, that's you, right?
1: Yeah,
0: no, 100%. <laughs> Danny Kay stepped in at the very last minute, accepting an offer of $200,000 and 10% of the gross.
2: Good for him.
0: At this point, Mel Frank and Norman Panama were brought on to punch up the dialogue, particularly for Kay's character. Uh, they wound up rewriting the entire movie top to bottom, dismissing <laughs> Krasna's gr- draft as senseless trash. They got 5000 a week for it.
2: Thank <laughs> God.
0: <I> <laughs> okay, how bad was the strap? It <laughs> drove Fred Astaire away. <laughs> I, I know. The White Christmas that we just finished watching, and this is the first time I've seen the movie the whole way through, beginning to end. I don't think it's a bad movie, but it's a very slight movie.
1: Yeah, there's like, you don't watch it for the plot.
0: Yeah, it's a very basic let's put on a show movie.
1: The twists and turns but, are a little convoluted for the romance.
0: Yeah, I've definitely seen worse from musicals from this period. Bing Crosby also dropped out of the movie mid-production, but that was because his wife had died and he had to raise his kids by himself. Paramount was able to lure him back in by offering him an even bigger check and 50% of the profits. Yeah, Yeah, he made out like a bandit from this motherfucker because this movie made some goddamn money. Rosemary Clooney pursued the role of Betty Haynes because, as she put it several times in just about every retrospective of this film that I came across, she believed that co-starring in a Bing Crosby musical would be a very savvy career move for her, and she was right. (laughs) She was
2: indeed.
0: Vera Ellen was largely cast for her beauty, stage presence, and dancing prowess. Her singing parts were dubbed in by Trudy Stevens, who is a friend of Clooney who was recommended by her. Clooney once quipped that the film might have been even more perfect if they had dubbed her own dancing in because Rosemary Clooney was very self deprecating. But
2: it's not very nice. I think she did a fine job. They didn't give her much to do as far as dancing
1: goes, so and there's probably a reason for that, though.
0: Yeah, Rosemary Clooney is a singer. For the music for this, Irving Berlin wrote all of the songs, although almost none of them were intended for this film itself. It is a jukebox musical and very much feels like it. For instance, during the midnight snack sequence, among the many things that were lifted from Holiday Inn, the George Washington and Lincoln numbers were paraphrased there. Some people claim that White Christmas is a remake of Holiday Inn, which is excessive but not entirely far off.
1: I think of it as kind of like a do-over. I, I didn't really... Like, Holiday Inn was okay. This one's better.
0: Yeah, for the various songs for this, uh, Snow was first composed for... I
2: love Snow! Co-
0: it was first composed for Call Me Madam under the title of Free. The song was cut from the performance during out-of-town tryouts. Berlin tweaks the lyrics to make it more Christmassy for this film. Count Your Blessings was one of the few songs that was actually intended for this film itself. It was written so that White Christmas would have something to submit for the Best Original Song category at the Oscars. (laughs) Yes, they've been doing this for that long. I think all of you musical nerds out there are aware that whenever a big budget musical finally gets a Hollywood transcription, they tack on one not nearly as good as the rest of the songs just so they could have something for the Oscars. And yeah, that's for this. I don't think Count Your Blessings is that bad of a song. And it did get nominated, although it lost to Three Coins in the Fountain.
2: I don't know that song.
0: It is from a movie called Three Coins in the Fountain.
1: Okay, so wait a minute. This was also the same year as the best version of A Star is Born. That one didn't get any best songs, because all of those songs were original for that movie. A Star is Born got screwed at the Oscars. Fuck the Oscars.
0: We're talking about the Judy Garland one, not the Lady Gaga one. Which one big?
1: Fuck the Oscars.
0: We can get back to that.
1: Yeah, there is going to be an episode of this podcast on the good version of A Star is Born at some point.
0: I think the Gaga version's pretty good.
1: But the good one, though. (laughs) (laughs)
0: All right. What can you do for a general was written for an unproduced play entitled Stars on My Shoulders. Leonard Malton said that it was the most boring song in a musical ever. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's harsh. I can see where he's coming from.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to (laughs) argue.
0: Berlin wrote a singer, a dancer for an Astaire Crosby duet. He tweaked it into a crooner, a comic when Donald O'Connor was on board, and then the song was abandoned completely when O'Connor left. Instead, we have Sitting in the Sun Counting My Money, which is written for the film, but Berlin published it on his own when White Christmas was in development hell. A number of people have recorded that song. My favorite is the Sam Cooke version, because Sam Cooke. Yeah! Crosby and Kay instead recorded a Berlin tune entitled Santa Claus, but this was also not used in the film. Although, the recording has survived. Look it up on YouTube if you're so curious. An interesting tidbit about White Christmas is that it ran into legal problems because DECA, the record label, controlled the soundtrack rights, but Clooney was signed to Columbia, a rival label.
2: Is that
1: why she's not on the soundtrack then?
0: As such, there are two re recorded soundtrack albums, scare quotes, that competed against each other upon the movie's release. The DECA version features Crosby with Peggy Lee doing Clooney's parts. i do too
2: it doesn't work as well
0: the columbia version features clooney singing with her sister betty huh.
1: i haven't found that version i'll have to see if i can add that to my christmas playlist
0: the actual soundtrack for the film has never been released commercially on its own
1: Ooh, i want a nice version of snow <laughs> somebody fix that your podcast has had that power before
0: Yes, it has.
2: You've released soundtracks
0: before? (laughs) No. By
1: complaining about things on this podcast, changes get made.
0: It's something of a running joke. When Rachel and I did a podcast about Clone High, we talked about the possibility of the show ever being revived as being completely remote. And then as I was publishing that episode, the Clone High revival was announced. That's amazing. When we did, when uh, Muppet Christmas Carol sylvan and i talked about when love is gone and how the masters for it were lost and it is unlikely that it'll ever be restored properly for a streaming or blu-ray version of muppet christmas carol and then the week that i put up the muppet christmas carol episode they found it in the archives and it got restored
2: (laughs) so
1: again somebody release a proper soundtrack of white christmas please and thank you
0: I'm surprised you haven't asked us to find the lost footage for A Star is Born.
1: Actually, I've mentioned that a couple of times, and I'll mention it again. full Star is Born, please and thank you. 1954
0: version, the good one. Once again, the Gaga version's not bad. I liked it.
1: We can save this for another podcast.
0: Okay. Bye. <laughs> All right, for the filming. Uh, White Christmas required many retakes because Danny Kaye kept causing his co-stars to crack up. The performance of sisters where Crosby and Kaye are doing it well, began the
1: best part of the movie.
0: Yeah, it began with the actors clowning around on set. Director Michael Curtis thought that it was funny enough to film And he, and did, he was right. Yeah, he did two takes of it. Test audiences preferred the first take where Crosby couldn't keep a straight face and it is very <laughs> charming. He is at his most likable during that scene.
1: It was fun with us just watching the movie now because they decided to put that part in and then write a reason for it after the fact. That's very, like, unconvincing. There's this whole thing about the girls almost being arrested so they need to distract the sheriff and the landlord and... Bob even says a couple of times, why don't we just give them the $200? And they keep pushing with it anyway. So Cheryl was getting rather confused about all of this obvious plot hole bullshit. I'm like, no, 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 it's setting up for something, it's great.
2: (laughs) And there's no other reason they could think for that scene to be in the movie. I mean,
1: what what have you got off the top of your head?
0: This is in the pre-Rogers and Hammerstein days where the songs don't have to and usually aren't directly connected to the plot.
2: I would like to see something like some, like, it hot kind of stuff going on. Like, that would have been fine. That would have been a whole different movie, though. I would have loved it.
0: White Christmas is noteworthy for being the first film shot and released in VistaVision, one of a number of expanded aspect ratio gimmicks that Hollywood studios trotted out in the 1950s in an attempt to give audiences more bombast and spectacle than television could provide. The most successful version of this would be CinemaScope, which kind of got the ball rolling. This division is noteworthy for extending the height of the screen rather than the width. This resulted in a much sharper image. As such, White Christmas looks much better on flat-screen TVs in the modern day than many of its contemporaries. This is a very beautiful-looking film, if nothing else.
1: Yeah, I definitely think the draw to this one is mostly just the spectacle of it, because they were really trying to show off their technology. So the color saturation is gorgeous. The costumes, oh my god, like almost every outfit in this movie is stunning. And the sets are just so over the top and elaborate.
0: This is something I brought up in previous episodes, but the mid 1950s were a famously troubled time for Hollywood studios. Not only was television taking away a lot of their primary viewership and cutting into their profits, because why would you go for a mid level, mid budget comedy when you could just watch it on TV for free? But another aspect of it was, you know, the white flight from the inner city to the suburbs meant that movie theaters weren't a couple of blocks away, you would have to drive into the city to go see one. So they kept trying to find ways to convince people to make the trek and throw their dimes away. The expanded aspect ratio is one thing. Then there was 3D, smell-o-vision, various other gimmicks. Say that again. <laughs> okay, there was smell-o-vision. This was a bit where, worry you watched the movie, they would re- release scented gases that would make you think of various okay. scenes in the movie. It
2: sounds like a Batman going.
0: <laughs> well, usually they would hand out, like, scratch cards where you would, like, scratch your little lottery ticket and then smell it.
2: Well, see, that's a little bit different than gas in the
0: audience. (laughs) There were some people who used gas. It it wasn't a long-running gimmick. Back on track, though, White Christmas is also notable for being one of the earliest performances for George Shakiris, who is best known as Bernardo in 1961's West Side Story. He was one of Rosemary Clooney's backup dancers.
2: He had a bow tie.
0: Yes,
1: Uh, Like everybody in that interesting number had a bow tie. We going to talk about that one yet? The dance
2: of the Riddlers.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, he's also in the bit where uh, Clooney is singing the solo act. He's the pretty one.
2: Oh, good for him.
0: Yeah. Cheryl's like, oh, he's much better looking than the other ones. (laughs) He was. That's Bernardo. Which, because he's present in the film as a backup dancer with no spoken lines, that means White Christmas has three Oscar winners in it, if we're splitting hairs. After the very final shot was completed, cast and crew were informed that the King and Queen of Greece were visiting the set. Uh. <laughs> uh, Curtis decided to have everyone perform the finale again for, you know, the King and Queen's benefit. They didn't even bother to put film in the cameras for this. They just sort of, like, went through the motions. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I suppose.
1: The poor little girls doing uh, ballet on point, though.
0: Yeah, I know. They had to do that all over again.
1: <laughs>
2: but they got to do it for a queen.
1: Their poor little feet.
2: They're ballerinas. Yep. They don't feel their feet anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll reiterate that many scenes and musical numbers were recycled from Holiday Inn. Most infamously, I'd rather see a minstrel show. Ah! Set design, props, costuming, and musical arrangement all reflect minstrel show traditions. But unlike Holiday Inn, there is no blackface.
2: Yeah,
1: so I saw White Christmas for the first time when I was like nine years old. I got a solo in the school Christmas concert from the song, and my cousin decided to show me the movie because she thought I'd find it interesting. I did not at that age. I thought it was very boring, and then saw it on TV a few times. And then when I was older, got into, you know, old-timey Hollywood musicals, and it was on Netflix, and I was like, oh, I'm going to sit down and watch White Christmas. I bet I'll appreciate it. Holy crap, this number was not in any of the previous versions I'd seen.
0: It is routinely <laughs> excised from television broadcasts for reasons that we'll be getting into the thematic portions. The train scenes for White Christmas were shot on the 20th Century Fox lot, as they were the only studio at the time with a train set available. Uh, MGM had one, but they wouldn't let them use it.
1: Yeah, this is not surprising to anyone who knows anything about
0: MGM. For the reception of this film, uh, it had a budget of $2 million, and it ultimately made $30 million at the box office, making it the biggest hit of 1954 by a very wide margin. The number two film was The Kane Mutiny, which made about a third of what White Christmas did. Another Irving Berlin jukebox musical entitled There's No Business Like Show Business was at number 10. That was a 20th Century Fox production. Oddly enough, White Christmas didn't get a proper stage musical until 2004. That feels like low-hanging fruit, especially considering that everything gets a musical these days. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like an obvious layup, but anyways, it premiered off-Broadway in San Francisco, and has played at most major theater cities in the world since. All right, now, let's get to the themes. First, and most more gingerly, the secularization of Christmas, of which White Christmas is a very important component of.
1: Yeah, there is nothing religious in this movie.
0: No, it is aggressively not religious, which isn't surprising, considering all of the songs were written by a Jewish guy. Yeah, fair. You see, uh, when Christmas first started off, it was largely put on December 25th by Emperor Constantine because that was Saul Invictus's feast day, and he wanted to sort of help the transition from paganism to Christianity since he became a Christian, and that means that everyone in the Roman Empire had to become Christian too. But in the century since the Middle Ages, Christmas was often an excuse to just drink. It was one of those holidays like Cinco de Mayo in America or St. Patrick's Day or Mardi Gras. For instance, caroling began as a tradition where working class people would go into rich neighborhoods and start singing at them for tips, and then they would trash the rich people's houses if they were stingy. I think we should bring this back.
1: Yeah, the observance of Christmas was actually banned in Massachusetts for a good long while because it was a rowdy, drunken debauchery kind of thing. Uh, It started becoming family-friendly during the Victorian period. That's when Christmas, as we understand it, sort of gelled together.
0: Efforts to sanitize Christmas as a family-friendly holiday began in earnest in the mid-19th century, as As Sylvan pointed out. Yeah. (laughs) This was galvanized by the 1823 publication of the poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known as Twas the Night Before Christmas. Most of the secular pagan borrowed Christmas iconography, such as Christmas trees, started becoming far more common in the late 19th century. We touched upon this during the Muppet Christmas Carol episode. White Christmas is kind of the rusty dagger for this phenomenon. As I mentioned before, this is essentially when secular Christmas songs started dominating the pop charts, but it was already turning in this direction beforehand. Most infamously, during the Great Depression, Franklin Delano Roosevelt moved Thanksgiving to a set Thursday in November, so there would always be an extra shopping week for Christmas. So if anyone is complaining about Christmas horning in on Thanksgiving, that's been going on since before your grandparents were born.
2: I don't have an opinion.
0: I'm like, okay. Yeah, Sylvan already mentioned White Christmas is barely a Christmas movie. Most Christmas movies are barely a Christmas movie. Whenever anybody is complaining about Christmas becoming too commercial or they're taking the Christ out of Christmas. No, that was very carefully designed that way.
1: They wanted this to have a broad appeal.
0: It was never about Jesus. It was about... Constantine being like, hey, forget about Saul Invictus, worship my guy instead, and then it was about getting shit-faced, and then it was about Santa.
2: And getting shit-faced. <laughs> and shopping.
0: And yeah, the next thing I'm going to bring up, uh, the long shadow of minstrel shows, because I was going to have to bring this up at some point or another, so why not this one?
2: Everybody loves Rise minstrel show. <laughs> Yeah, you didn't know that was there, huh? No, this is the second time this has happened to me (laughs) in my life, where I'm sitting down for a nice musical, and suddenly there's a minstrel show.
0: Well, well, I'm about to get into the history of American musical theater, so...
2: (laughs) (laughs) Buckle up!
0: Yeah, I don't want to be overtly didactic here, but no, I kind of do, because the QAnon lady at your local school meeting is going to keep your public school from teaching kids about this element of history because it makes them feel uncomfortable. So fuck it, we're going to talk about it here. Minstrel shows first came to prominence in the American Northeast during the 1830s. By 1848, they were the dominant force in American performance arts. Yeah,
1: I used to work at the House of the Seven Gables, and um, one of the families who owned the house actually published, like, minstrel songs. It was a huge part of Salem Theater.
0: Yeah, for those of you not in the know, because the QAnon lady at the school board meeting didn't want you to learn... Minstrel shows are essentially variety programs consisting of comedic skits, dancing, and musical performances featuring deeply racist caricatures of black people. They were done by white actors smearing black breeze paint on their face, a term that we call blackface. Black performers started performing in minstrel shows sometime in the 1840s, usually in all-black reviews because, you know, segregation. In these programs, black people are usually depicted as lazy, servile buffoons who can't function without the guiding hand of their kindly white masters. This subtextually reinforces white supremacy and has led to prejudices about black people that that have extended to the present day. It is hard to place the exact origin of the minstrel show, really. Blackface dates back to at least 1604, and having a black servant as a comic relief was a stock character for centuries beforehand. However, the minstrel show was likely kicked into high gear by a performer by the name of Thomas Dartmouth Daddy Rice, who performed a popular song and dance number around the traditional song Jump Jim Crow in 1828. Yes, that is where the term comes from. Rice claimed that his dancing routines were a comedic riff on a physically disabled slave he knew back in his plantation days, which very much tracks with how minstrel shows have affected the cultural landscape.
2: Yeah.
0: Most blackface performers, besides Rice, claimed that their routines were an authentic recreation of plantation life and black culture in general. This is widely disputed, particularly amongst African-American historical scholars. Minstrel shows declined in popularity after the Civil War, unsurprisingly, and they were essentially a shadow of themselves by the 20th century.
1: A lot of the tropes transferred over to vaudeville though, and then from vaudeville infected uh, Hollywood and uh, our Looney Tunes cartoons.
0: Uh, Yes, it is not difficult to find uh, the tendrils of minstrel shows in American performance arts, both in film and pop culture in general. For instance, The Jazz Singer, the first movie to have synchronized sound, is a minstrel routine that features a blackface performer. I have been wavering back and forth over whether or not to do an episode on it, but it is a blackface minstrel film that is also about the Jewish-American experience, and I feel that I am not qualified to address that movie Whatsoever, I don't know who I I could have the co-head that one. It's a tough movie to talk about. And as Sylvan mentioned already, a lot of minstrel traditions cross-pollinated with vaudeville, which began in Italy and uh, Europe in general, but spread to the United States, particularly amongst the 1920s, and it informed a great deal of comedy. The Marx Brothers films borrow very heavily from vaudeville in general and also minstrel shows, The Three Stooges, any classical comedy in general, really. And even you could make an argument for, say, variety uh, sketch comedy shows like Saturday Night Live or... Or the, um, the Zucker Brothers films like Airplane, where it's just gags coming at you a mile a minute. Minstrel shows were also very heavily influential upon uh, American pop music, particularly the Hokum subgenre of blues. Particularly numbers where they use very thinly veiled uh, sexual innuendo. You know songs like "Let Me Warm Your Wiener," or "There's a Banana in My Fruit Basket," or "My Girl's Pussy," or "Hot Nuts Get em from the Peanut Man."
1: Yeah, subtle,
0: huh? <laughs> A couple of other minstrel songs of note would be Carry Me Back to Old Virginia," which was Virginia State song until 1997. And there's also My Old Kentucky Home, which remains the state song of Kentucky. Keep
1: it classy, Kentucky.
0: <laughs> minstrel humor uh, was also heavily lifted for the golden age of animation, as Sylvan touched upon already, not only in the Looney Tunes shorts, many of which did flat-out minstrel numbers, but Mickey Mouse's persona in general is very much derived from the stock minstrel characters, particularly the dandy. Mickey also has white gloves for color contrast, but those were a stock motif in minstrel productions nonetheless. I found it very glaring that in the minstrel number with all of the racist serial numbers shaved off in uh, White Christmas, they're all wearing red gloves instead of white.
1: Yeah, I mean, that could have been a choice to, like, amp up the technicolor dazzlement of everything, but it probably wasn't.
0: Well, every time that someone mentions Mickey Mouse's minstrel roots in circles, people just bring up, well, the white gloves were there for color contrast. And I was like, that is true. However, they didn't pick those white gloves out of a hat. Those white gloves have a background, and that was not accidental. It can be multiple things.
2: In the, um, the scene you're talking about in White like Christmas, though, there's also giant red gloves on top of banjos.
0: Yeah, the banjo became very heavily connected to the minstrel shows because the banjo was... It's rooted in West African musical tradition. It was carried over with the slaves. I remember a um, number of bluegrass groups with black musicians, most notably the Carolina Chocolate Drops, talking about how they think it's bullshit that country and bluegrass and string music is considered a white thing. Because so much of it is rooted in you know the African-American experience and that they started performing in an effort to try to take some of that back and make it their own again. Uh, yeah, yeah. this is the part where I'm talking about something uncomfortable, where I feel the need to point out that every cool nerd thing that you like has roots in something awful. This doesn't mean that you aren't allowed to find it entertaining, but pretending that this shit didn't happen in order to make one feel more comfortable is something that I find ethically dubious. And I do think that we have a responsibility to discuss these things in their historical context honestly.
1: Absolutely. Analyzing things also, like, doesn't mean that you're hating on it. But yeah, this is a very weird musical number, because again, they, at this point, like, it seems like there's some racial consciousness going on, but they still don't quite understand what racism is, because in their efforts to not be racist, they've just kind of created a different sort of discomfort.
0: Yeah, they're just removing black people from the minstrel number completely
1: yeah like there's there's no there's no black people in this movie at all. like for starters, there's not even like bit characters in the background.
0: Yeah, while it was playing, I was thinking of the minstrel number in the Marx Brothers film A Day at the Races where you know they're doing a similar song and dance routine, and the Marx Brothers are hiding from the cops and they think the best way to slip away was to hide amongst the black people.
1: Yeah, because cops never look at crowds of black people.
0: And, yeah, they, they put on blackface, and Groucho's gag is that he just takes the grease paint for his fake mustache and just smears it all over the rest of his face. Oh, boy. That is why that is not the first Marx Brothers movie I had either of you watch.
1: then <laughs> So, anyway, yeah, weird, uncomfortable number. Um, I think of this as kind of an interesting uh, transition point in Hollywood movie musicals, too, though, because, like, they know that painting the people's faces black is wrong now. They just don't know how to be right yet.
0: In a lot of ways, White Christmas is a transitional film because, I mean, the big show-stopping MGM-style musical is on its way out. It is declining. Television is killing that. But it's not done yet. Like I said, this film was a big hit, and there are a couple of big musical hits on the horizon. The Sound of Music hasn't happened yet. We're still a good 15 years away from Hello, Dolly and Dr. Doolittle Destroying Everything. But yeah, you, you can feel the sweaty energy like they're not only in the Vista vision, but just in how much money was spent on this. And this film could have been a lot cheaper than it was. Oh, absolutely. But they needed something that was more expensive than what TV was capable of at the time in order to remind people that Hollywood could do things that TV couldn't. But uh, one theme that you wanted to bring up in the film was its propagandistic undertones, particularly when it comes to... uh,
1: Romanticizing the army, yeah?
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I wish I was back in the army.
1: (laughs) What a ridiculous song that is. So... Me and Ryan were talking a little bit on the way over to do this episode, and I don't know a ton about Bing Crosby. I like him. I listen to a lot of his music at my work, which has a nostalgic lean to it.
0: And you're a hard sell on crewers.
1: Yeah, I'm not a big fan of crooners overall, but I don't know. Bing is very, like, corny, and you know you're getting a romanticized, rose-tinted view of the past, and there's a conservatism to his music and his films that, you know, runs through all of them, where everything just gets very simplified. But it has its charm, and that stuff doesn't usually work on me, because, you know, the good old days were not good for queer weirdos like me. But, I don't know, it still works somehow.
0: Yeah, there is the valorization aspect of this, which is hard to deny because we're talking about World War II, where the United States is a little easier to root for, as Sylvan put it. Yeah. I mean, granted, if you look even a little bit under the surface, there's still all of the ugly, terrible white supremacy and imperialistic elements of it. But, you know, we were fighting the Nazis, and that's the worst case scenario for all of those things I just mentioned. <laughs>
2: sorry that caught me off guard and
1: i think it helps with this movie too that it is such a movie you know this is not the real world in any shape way or form so Uh you're divorced enough from reality that you don't really need to think too hard about how these things would apply to the real world
0: yeah everything is very clearly a soundstage that snow is fake i had to look up to find out that it was asbestos but it is clearly not snow When they're at the club in Florida, there are these (laughs) palm trees, and then like this Thomas Kincaid lighthouse there. And I haven't been to Florida too often, but I don't think they have Thomas Kincaid lighthouses and canals and canals. Well, there's
1: a lot of canals in Florida. I didn't see any. Jen lived on one at
0: one point. Yeah, she she lives in Cape Coral, which is an entirely like artificial, recently created community. Everything's little grid.
1: The the canal was not the weird part. It was the Kincaid lighthouse. (laughs) Also, I don't know for sure that they were in Florida. I just assumed they were because they were on there were palm trees, and then they're taking the train to get to Vermont. But again,
2: fantasy movie world. Maybe they were already in Vermont.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were on the Paramount lot in Los Angeles. <laughs> All right. Well, that's everything in my notes. Is there anything we either of you would like to touch upon for White Christmas before we sign off?
1: I guess I wanted to give one more shout out to the beautiful dresses in this movie. Oh, and did we want to talk about any of the weirdness around body image?
0: I suppose we should, because...
2: Yeah, um, George Clooney's face.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I pointed out that uh, Rosemary Clooney is George Clooney's aunt, and that they, they look alike, and then Cheryl just kept seeing George Clooney in her dress.
2: The whole movie, so...
0: They got the eyebrows... They got the same eyebrows.
2: Exact same.
1: I'm very fond of Rosemary Clooney. Um, Amazing voice. I listen to a lot of her recordings. But yeah, one of the first things that jumps out to people when they watch this movie is how very tiny Vera Ellen was. She has a super, super small waist and very petite build to begin with. And the costuming choices that they make, while very fabulous looking outfits, they don't really help you any there because they really emphasize how little her waist was. And I, actually decided to Google while we were watching this, whether she did have like struggles with eating disorders or anything. And she and her family all adamantly denied that she was ever anorexic. She was just a very serious dancer and also a swimmer. So probably very active her whole life. But um, a, a rumor persisted that the reason why all of her costumes covered up her neck in the movie was supposedly to hide signs of the anorexia that you could see in her neck. But for one thing, we did see her neck in the first outfit she wore.
2: Yeah, she has a mature woman's neck. She doesn't have like a, any... It didn't seem weird to me.
0: That did raise my eyebrows that you said mature woman's neck several times while watching the film. Well, you can see that she's got some wrinkles. Yeah. It's,
2: it's, not, it's like you can see the tendons more when a woman gets old. It's, it's nice. I like it. It's like an artist I think It's fascinating. But I think it contrasts
1: because Rosemary Clooney has like dresses where it's more of like a plunging neckline. But I think that's just because she had a totally different body type, and they were trying to really like highlight that figure. She was busty.
2: Yep, I noticed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs>
1: But I also think that that's kind of interesting that, um, you know, in, in our time period and when we were growing up, Vera Ellen's figure would have been more the one that was like that people were supposed to find appealing and alluring. And instead, in the 50s, it made people go, oh, something's got to be wrong. Whereas, you know, Rosemary Clooney being the curvy, busty one was like, that was the more conventionally attractive figure at the time. And then, you know, on a recent viewing of this movie with my my mom and and our aunt, they were both talking about how fat she looked.
2: Whereas like I was like horrified and worried for the smaller woman the whole time. Her legs, the muscles like that was I've never I haven't seen anything like that before.
1: Yeah, so anyway, changing beauty standards. I think they both looked nice, but Vera Ellen was definitely a very small lady.
0: So, yeah, if, uh, if the discussion of minstrel show history and Nazis was enough to scare you off, we're going to, you know, we talked about uh, expectations upon feminine bodies during the Hollywood era. Just checking everything off <laughs> glad you're feeling weird thanks for listening
2: <laughs> merry christmas
0: yeah looking forward to the other christmas movies we're doing for this season
1: may all your christmases be white white, quick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know what we're talking about all right that's it for this one once again thanks for listening congrats on getting to the end of this we will well listen to us next time good night